Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am currently in Acts chapter 17. In this audio, I'm going to cover verses 1 through 15. We are on the second missionary journey. That journey had as its participants Paul and Silas, who started out from Antioch, in Lystra, in the middle of Asia Minor. Timothy probably was picked up there. They crossed over into Europe from Troas, and at Troas they picked up Luke. So there are four principal missionaries involved in this apostolic tour. In our last chapter, in chapter 16, we left the apostles at Philippi. They had just gotten persecuted, put in jail, released miraculously from the jail, and they headed out from Philippi, and we now pick up the story in Acts 17, verse 1. Then they traveled. Now, it's questionable who the they is now, because a lot of people say that Luke was left in Philippi because the we passages in Acts stop right there. So I'll just go along with that. We, nobody knows for sure, but let's just say Luke stayed at Philippi and Paul and Silas and Timothy. And some people say Timothy stayed at Philippi, too. This is all, to me, at least at my current state of knowledge, seems to me a bunch of speculation. We know that Paul and Silas, at least, and maybe Timothy through, traveled on from Philippi through Amphipolis and Apollonia and came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. Now, in this audio, I'm going to discuss the events at two cities, Thessalonica and Berea. Now, we need to look at the map. Philippi, which is right northwest from the famous island of Thessos in the northern Aegean Sea, famous Roman city there. It was named after Philip II, the father of Alexander the Great. There was a road running from Philippi going mainly west, a little bit south, that was called the Ignatian Way. And if you look at the map and follow that road, you will see it comes to Amphipolis first. Now, Amphipolis is at the mouth of the Strymon River, and it actually is a famous city in Greek history. There were no Jewish synagogues there, apparently. No church was ever founded there that we know of. But it was very important. It pops up a lot in Greek history. The city was built by Cimon, the famous Athenian general, that famous Athenian general who played a key role in establishing Athens' powerful maritime empire after Salamis, which is 480 BC. It was the famous battle against the Persians at Salamis. The the city, Amphipolis, was on an island in the river Strymon, according to Adam Clark. It was famous for many reasons. For example, Thucydides the city having been taken by the Spartans, and it was under the control of the Athenians when the Spartans got it. Thucydides, an Athenian general, tried to get the city back in four, about 423 B.C. and failed. The Athenians exiled him, and I'm glad they did, because then the Thucydides used his leisure time to write his famous history of the Peloponnesian War, which book is still being read in military schools and in classics departments all over the world. So... So Amphipolis is where he lost his his command. The Spartans beat Athens in an important battle in 422, the Battle of Amphipolis. That was during the Pel- Peloponnesian War. The place was strategically important because there was a lot of gold and silver nearby. There was a lot of sh- timber for shipbuilding nearby. It was on a river which ran up into Thrace for trade purposes. It also controlled the sea routes that Athens used to get grain from Scythia, southern Russia, on the Black Sea down through the Bosphorus, the Propontis, the Hellespont, and into the Aegean Sea, and into 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 Amphipolis, and into Greece. So it's a very important place. But 
Paul often stopped in important places, but he didn't stop there. He goes next to Apollonia. The only reason Apollonia is famous is because Augustus Caesar learned a Greek there, if you call that famous. We need to look at the map here. If you look at the northwestern Aegean Sea, you will see something that looks like a dog's paw with three claws sticking out into the Aegean Sea. That's the well-known peninsula of Chalcidae. Chalcidae, pronounced differently at different times, but that's the way I'm going to pronounce it. It has three long, spiny peninsulas sticking out into the Aegean Sea. Well, if you'll look back up from those claws, if you will, and look at the paw, like it's a dog's paw, where that paw hooks onto the leg of the dog, at the right end of it is some water there, uh, on the coast of which is Amphipolis. Apollonia is right in the middle, sort of in the middle of the dog's paw, before the dog's paw hooks in with the leg, which is the mainland of, mainland of Thrace, or, or Macedonia, I'm sorry, we're in Macedonia now. And then if you continue west on the road, on the road, the Ignatian Way, you get to the western end of that Chalcidity Peninsula, the dog's paw, and there's a bay that sticks up there where the paw ends, hooks into the leg, if you will, of the Macedonian coast, and that's the famous city of Thessalonica, which is still there today. It's called Salonica now. And so as we go from Philippi to Amphipolis to Apollonia to Thessalonica, it's about 100, 120 miles or so. When you're walking, that's, that's a good ways. I would hate to walk 120 miles, but they did. There was no synagogue at Apollonia either, just like there was none at Philippi. And because there were no Jews there, at no synagogues at Amphipolis and Apollonia, that's why Paul probably didn't stop there. Because remember, his custom was to speak to the synagogues first. We go to verse 2 in Acts 17. As usual, Paul went to the synagogue. We see as usual, that was his usual custom. Go to the synagogue first, the Jews first, and then the Gentiles. And on three Sabbath days, reason with them from the scriptures. That's about two weeks, three Sabbath days. Two weeks, as the NIV Study Bible says. Now, these two weeks do not represent all the time that Paul spent in Thessalonica, as the NIV Study Bible points out. In fact, if you read it, it sounds like that's the only time they spent in Thessalonica. But the NIV Study Bible points out that an analysis of the two Thessalonian letters shows that Paul taught them much doctrine. He couldn't have taught them all that stuff in two weeks, two or three weeks. So, how did Paul reason from the Scriptures? He says he reasoned with them from the Scripture. That's a verse that you could use when people say, oh, it's just Jesus and the Holy Spirit. No, you can use, there's nothing wrong with your mind. Christianity is not anti-intellectual. Uh, the mind is perfectly fine to be used as long as it's under the control of the Holy Spirit. Paul reasoned with them from the Scriptures. How? Well, to show them that the Messiah had come. He was speaking to Jews, and that's a great way to talk to Jews, is to say, hey, this is, these are your Hebrew Scriptures, and they predict Jesus. Now, of course, he probably not use that talking to Gentiles, but he was talking to Jews now. Acts 17.3, we move on. Paul is explaining and showing that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. Now, if you're talking to a Jew, the first thing you've got to get out of his head at that time was that the Messiah was going to be a glorious political Messiah, a royal Messiah, clothed in regal robes, riding on a white horse, conquering his military opponents, and so forth. No, Paul says no. That's not what the scriptures say. This, the Messiah was going to suffer, and Jesus fits that category. Now, Paul, it do, Luke doesn't tell us what verses Paul was using to show that the Messiah had to suffer, but John Gill suggests 
these verses. Genesis 3.15, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He will strike your head and, he will, and you will strike his heel. There's the conflict between the devil and Jesus, the famous proto-evangelium. Isaiah 53.2-5 is the obvious passage of the suffering servant. He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised, and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses, and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. The famous suffering servant passage great place to witness to a Jew, even today, if you ask me. We go to verse 4, Acts 17. Then some of them were persuaded, some of the Jews there, were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. We're still in, we're in Thessalonica now. Some of the, some of them in Thessalonica were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, including a great number of God-fearing Greeks, as well as a number of the leading women. Now, God-fearing Greeks would be proselytes of the gate, probably. They could be heathen that hadn't proselyted yet to the Jewish faith, but could they just be interested? Doesn't really, we don't really know for sure. The leading women, those could be leading women in their own right, or they could be wives of prominent men in the city. I don't know the culture. I don't think anybody really knows exactly the culture back then, who these leading women were, but they were leading women. We notice that women are, are responding to the gospel. You recall that Lydia had gotten saved in her household. Probably a lot of women were saved back in Philippi, and later on, as we move from Thessalonica to Berea later on in verse 12, we're going to read that many of them believed, including a number of the prominent Greek women. So the gospel is spreading amongst the fairer sects. Now, Jameson Fawcett Brown's got an interesting idea here. He speculates that Paul may have received financial support from these leading women. They were leading, so therefore they had money. Well, I'm going to read some verses that I think prove that Jameson Fawcett and Brown are wrong, because Paul didn't receive donations from people he was preaching to. He didn't want to cause people to stumble and say, see there, he's just in it for the money. We read in 1 Thessalonians 2.9, Paul says this, For you, talking to the Thessalonians, you remember our labor and hardship, brothers, working night and day so that we would not burden any of you. We preach God's gospel to you. Does that sound like he's receiving money from anybody in Thessalonica, including the prominent women? I don't think so, Jameson Fawcett and Brown. 2 Thessalonians 3.7-9, we read this, Paul says this, For you yourselves know how you must imitate us. We were not irresponsible among you. We did not eat anyone's food free of charge. Instead, we labored and struggled, working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. It is not that we don't have the right to support, but we did it to make ourselves an example to you so that you would imitate us. Does that sound like he's receiving money from anybody, including the leading women of Thessalonica? I don't think so. Well, where did he get his money? Well, he got help from the Philippians, the city that he had just left as, as he sprung from the Philippian jail. We read in Philippians 4:15 through 16, Paul says this, And you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone, for even in Thessalonica you sent gifts for my need several times. Well, if Paul was receiving help from the prominent leading women of Thessalonica, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown say, why 
what did he need to get gifts from Philippi? Gifts for his need, as Paul puts it, as he writes to the Philippians. No, he didn't take money. This is this is a key point, an application point. If you want to make sure that nobody will criticize you for preaching the money for profit, preaching the gospel for money for profit. If you want to be sure that nobody can accuse you of that, just don't take the money. Get the money from somewhere else, either by working with your own hands or other people giving you the money. That's fine, but not from the people you're preaching to. Now, it's apparent here in Thessalonica that apparently more Greeks than Jews were converted in Thessalonica, according to Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. If you compare, if you look at the terminology, it says some Jews believed and great numbers of Greeks believed. That's here in verse 4. It says some of them were persuaded. That means some of the people in the synagogues. And then it says, including a great number of God-fearing Greeks. So you got some Jews, great number of Greeks. So we, Thessalonican church is mainly Gentile with a Jewish minority. We go to verse 5, Acts 17. But the Jews became jealous, and they brought together some scoundrels from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. Attacking Jason's house, they searched for them to bring them out to the public assembly, the search for Paul and Silas to bring them out to the public assembly. That's so they could get stoned. So they start a riot, and then, of course, once they start the riot, then they blame the riot on the Christians. The Christians don't start the riot, but they get blamed for the riot. Why were they jealous? Why were these Jews? Because so many people were coming to Jesus, including Jews, as well as God-fearing Gentiles and prominent women. The, 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 the gospel is having success here, and along with success comes persecution and opposition. Now, one of the persons that probably believed, doesn't say, but we can assume, it was Jason, because that's where the apostles were staying. Probably, he was probably a Jewish guy. Uh, uh, Jason's house was attacked by this mob. Paul was probably staying there. Jason appears to have been a disciple of Christ, as John Gill says. doesn't say so explicitly, but we assume he was. He's probably a Jew, because we read in Romans 16.21, Paul says this, Timothy, my co-worker, and Lucius, Jason, and Sisypater, my fellow countrymen greet you. Jason is one of the three fellow countrymen who greet the Romans. If it's the same Jason, well, then he would be a fellow Jew. But that's, just, again, speculation. We don't know it's the same Jason. Now we go to verse 6. When they, that's the Jewish mob, did not find them, Paul and Silas, they dragged Jason, because they were looking in Jason's house, and apparently Paul and Silas weren't there at the time. They dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials. That's some of the converts there in Thessalonica. Along with Jason were dragged before the city officials, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Well, if the Thessalonican Jews thought the world had been turned upside down then, in the middle of the second missionary journey, think what they would think now. There's over a billion Christians, a billion people who believe Paul's message and have been persuaded by Paul's message. And the world has been turned upside down by that little band of brothers who walked through walking along the coast of Macedonia and Greece, preaching the simple words of the gospel. Drag turned the world upside down. Now, these hostile Jews dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials. Now, it's an interesting archaeological point here. The Greek for officials is polytarch. This is from Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown in the NIV Study Bible. An inscription to polytarchs was found on an arch in the city of Thessalonica. And this shows how minute is Luke's detail and accuracy. He uses the exact local political term. This arch was discovered in 1835 
The arch was destroyed in 1867, but the inscription has, has been preserved and is now in the British Museum. And the term Politarch has been found in 16 other inscriptions in the area, in the surrounding towns of Macedonia and so forth. So, that shows that Luke knew what he was talking about. This is especially true when we get to the, the naval voyages of Paul after the third journey. Luke uses all kinds of maritime terminology, naval nautical terminology that the average person wouldn't use unless he really knew what he was talking about. So Luke is a great historian. We go to verse 7 in Acts 17. And Jason has received them as guests. The mob continues to complain to the polytarchs, to the officials. Jason, a horrible crime. He's received these, these rabble-rousers, Paul and Silas, as guests. They're all acting contrary to Caesar's decree, saying that there's another king, Jesus. Now, of course, this is a, a Roman tribunal, and what's the worst thing that you can accuse somebody of to a Roman official, a Roman judicial official? Insurrection, because the Romans hated riots. They hated insurrection. And another king instead of Caesar? Oh, that's the worst thing you can say. Well, now, of course, they were preaching another king, but they didn't make the distinction that the, the apostles were talking about a spiritual kingdom. Not a temporal one, as Gill and Clark point out. Nothing was said to trench upon Caesar's authority or glory. Of course not. But it's the same old, same old accusation. The Jews were making the same charge against Jesus. The Jews that killed Jesus said the same thing. John 19:12. From that moment, Pilate made every effort to release him, because Pilate knew Jesus was innocent. But the Jews shouted, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Anyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So once again, they were misrepresenting Jesus, saying he was trying to be a political king, which he was not trying to do. And so these Jews at Thessalonica take the same tack in attacking Jason and his fellow Christians. Why was Paul not there? Well, Paul and Silas, for some reason, weren't there at the house when the mob came, so they didn't get caught. Verses 8 through 9 in Acts 17, the Jews stirred up the crowd and the city officials who heard these things. So taking a security bond from Jason and the others, they released them. Well, these officials did better than the, the Jewish officials at Philippi. You remember at Philippi, when, uh, excuse me, not the Jewish officials, the Roman officials. At Philippi, the Roman officials actually beat Paul and Silas, flogged them without evidence, without taking testimony, and threw them in jail. And then Paul later said, hey, and then when they realized what they had done, they said, well, tell the jailer just to let them out of town. And Paul said, no, you, we're not going to slink out of town. We were, Roman, we were Roman citizens that you flogged without trial. So they, and Paul later said that we were just treated disgracefully in Philippi. Well, here it was not quite so bad because Jason was released with a peace bond, a security, we'd call it a peace bond today, a security bond, which basically says, Jason, you're going to have to guarantee a peaceful, quiet community. And if you don't, all your property is going to be confiscated. And maybe, as the NIV Study Bible suggests, you might even have to face death. Depends on the terms of the bond. And Jason was not put in prison. So at least they were behaving a little bit more according to judicial procedure there. The Roman officials, the city officials in Thessalonica. Now, of course... These officials, as I said earlier, they're scared to death of revolution. They're scared of that the Romans will become suspicious of their lack of ability to keep order. That's what they want. They want order. They don't care about truth or lack thereof of the apostles' messages. They just want civil peace. They did have. They had no desire to persecute the apostles for their faith. They weren't interested in, in, interested in that, as Adam Clark says. But the Jews forced them on legal grounds to proceed against the apostles because of that peace thing. Oh, they're proclaiming another king, starting a revolution. 
And so the apostles, the magistrates really had no choice but to investigate it. But they did act better than the kangaroo court in Philippi. Notice that it was not just Jason that gave the security bonds. Some other, some other unnamed Thessalonican Christians had to also sign the bond or give the bond. Acts 17.10, as soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas off to Berea. On arrival, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. As soon as it was night, why night? Well, that's to keep Paul and Silas from the fury of the mob. They'd, the whole city of Thessalonica was in an uproar. Jason was in trouble. And if Paul and Silas had hung around and preached the gospel again, they would probably have started another riot. And what's going to happen to Jason and the brothers? They're going to either lose their property or lose their lives. So Paul and Silas, to protect Jason and the brothers there at Thessalonica, I'm sure, they got out of town at night. They sneaked out. Now, we have Paul and Silas explicitly mentioned here. Remember, Timothy is probably still with them. We can't tell whether Timothy, where Timothy left and rejoined. We know that Timothy is definitely back in Berea with Paul and Silas in Acts 17:14. I'm going to assume he was still with them here. I don't know. Uh, some people assume Luke has been left off at Philippi. Some people assume, speculate that Timothy was left with Luke at Philippi, and Luke just doesn't tell us. That's a technical problem. doesn't really matter that much. Paul and Silas head off to Berea. Now, if you look at Berea, it's about 100, I don't know, about 100 miles, excuse me, about 50 miles from Thessalonica, if you'll look at the map. And here, Paul and Silas got off of the Ignatian Way, which from Thessalonica went due west through Pella, which is the ancient capital of Macedon, where Alexander the Great was born. They got off of that road, and I guess they went along the coast of the Aegean Sea there, and then inland a little ways, and they came to the town of Berea, which is still in Macedonia. It's the modern town of Veria, V-E-R-R-I-A. They went to the synagogue again, as was their custom. Acts 17.2 says, as usual, when they came to Thessalonica, as usual, Paul went to the synagogue, so that was their custom. They were not at all discouraged by the events in Thessalonica. They said, well, the Jews in Thessalonica were pretty upset. Started a riot, but we're going to try again with the Jews in Berea. Now, I've already mentioned it, but I'll mention it again. Why did they leave? Why did they leave? They were trying to protect Jason and the brothers from more riots. If there was a riot, Jason and their brothers, because of that peace bond, that security bond, they would lose all their property. It's not that they were cowards. Obviously, Paul and Silas were not cowards. All you have to do is read the story of their journeys. But they weren't going to... They were smart, too. And there's a difference between being brave and rash. Paul and Silas were not rash. Acts 17.11. The people here were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica. This is in Berea. Since they welcomed the message with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Now, this verse is quoted a lot. Let's be like the Bereans and... Examine the scriptures to see if these things were so. And that's a great application, and I believe in it. I've been spending all my life examining the scriptures to see if the lousy theology that was given to me was true or not. And I've changed my mind on a lot of stuff by examining the scriptures. Most people hold their theology surely, purely on the basis of tradition. My mama told me that. My daddy told me that. My church told me that. And my church can't be wrong because I got saved there. And there's such good, fine people there. And that, that hasn't got a thing to do with whether something's true or not. You have to examine the scriptures to see if it's true. And they did that in Berea. Well, who was it that did that? Was it the Bereans in general, or was it the Jews in the synagogue? That's an interesting question. John Gill says it's the Jews. In favor of that proposition, 
It was the Jews who stirred up the crowd in Thessalonica, and Luke is trying to contrast those anti-Christian Jews in Thessalonica with the pro-Christian Jews here in Berea. So the people here would be the people, the Jews here were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica. He's making a comparison, Jew for, with Jew. Anti-Christian Jew in Thessalonica, pro-Christian Jews in Berea. That's a pretty good argument. Another argument, this is my argument, is that who's going to be searching the scriptures, Jews or Gentiles? Well, it seems to me that Gentiles aren't interested in the Jewish scriptures. Jews are going to search the scriptures and examine the scriptures daily, not Gentiles. That's the second argument. The third argument is a lot of translations don't just say, like the Holman Christian Study Bible says, the people here. It says the Jews here. For example, in the English Standard Version, the ESV, we read this. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. The NIV translates it that way. The Amplified translates it that way. And the New Century Version translates it that way. Well, on the other side of the argument, that it's not Jews that were more open-minded, not the Berean Jews, but the Berean people in general, you could say, well, it was a whole crowd at Thessalonica who the Jews stirred up against the apostles. And so Luke is trying to contrast the whole crowd of people in Thessalonica, everybody, Jews and Gentiles who were closed-minded in Thessalonica compared to all the people in Berea, Jews and Gentiles who were open-minded in Berea. That's reasonable. And I will say this, that J.P. Green's literal and Young's literal translations just have these, as, as do most of the English translations, just say these. So I guess it's a translator's choice, translator's interpretation. I haven't actually looked at the Greek here, but I'm assuming that it literally means the people. And you have to imply, you have to infer that it's the Jewish people who are more open-minded. Not that it really matters that much. I will say this, though. You know, those uh, we have to note that even though many, many of the early Jews opposed the Christian church, not all of them did. A lot of them believed. We've, we've seen people believed, maybe not a lot, but we see Jews converted here in Thessalonica. We read in verse 4 in Thessalonica, some of them were persuaded. Those were the Jews that Paul was speaking, Paul and Silas were preaching to in the, in the synagogue there in Thessalonica. So, yeah, some Jews believed. Now, notice these Bereans, whether Jews or Gentiles, they didn't just believe on the apostles' word. Well, the apostles said so, so I believe based on their authority. No, they went to the scriptures. They didn't listen to the apostles. I mean, they, I mean, excuse me, they listened to the apostles, but they didn't make their final decision based upon the fact that these were the great and mighty Christian apostles that are speaking to us. No, they went back to the word of God. I remember we have a, my wife and I had a, we've got an Indian friend now, but she was an acquaintance that we, conv that, that we let to help lead to the Lord. And Indians, you know, have gurus all over India. And this girl kept, she would keep, well, she's not really a girl. She was a young woman in her 30s, I guess. And she kept saying, what do I do in this situation? Dan, what should I do? And finally, I said, you know, in Christianity, we don't have gurus. <laughs> we don't have gurus. It's between you and your Bible. I mean, I can give you advice. I can give you suggestions. I can give you counsel. But by golly, when push comes to serve, it's between you and God. We don't have gurus in the faith. And these Bereans were like that. They didn't take the apostles as gurus. They went and searched the scriptures for themselves. They're said to be open-minded. The King, King James Version has they were noble. John Gill says the Bereans were more better educated and more polished than the Thessalonians. And I don't think that's the right idea at all. The NIV has they had more noble character, not more noble education, more noble character. I think that's the better better way to look at that. We go to verse 12 in Acts 17. Consequently, many of them believed, 
many of the Bereans believed, including a number of the prominent Greek women as well as men. Now, these Greeks were either proselytes or just heathens who believed. Proselytes mean God-fearers, proselytes of the gate. Don't know, we can't say. But notice that women are getting converted here as well as men. Berean women are getting converted just like Thessalonican women were getting converted in verse 4. It was Remember in verse 4, we read, we read that leading women, some leading women at, at Thessalonica were getting saved. So the gospel is no Jew, no Greek, no male, nor female. There's no distinction. As far as salvation is concerned, now let me say there is a distinction as far as gender roles, of course. In, in a more sane age, I wouldn't have to say that, but since we're living in an age of absolute ridiculous feminist stupidity, such feminism which has even seeped its way into the church, that now nobody knows the difference between a boy and a girl and men who say that their women are walking into girls' bathrooms and are supported by the color of law in America. That's how crazy things are. And if you say anything against it, you'll be brought up before a hate crimes commission. So, let me make it clear. Women were getting saved because there's no distinction between men and women as far as salvation goes. Verse 13. But when the Jews from Thessalonica found out that God's message had been proclaimed by Paul at Berea, they came there too, agitating and disturbing the crowds. Now these same Jews had agitated in Thessalonica, stirred up a riot at Jason's house, if you recall. Or they were, they were well, maybe I'm a, that's a little bit strong. They didn't stir up a riot, but they stirred up the crowd. They were getting ready to start a riot, let's put it that way. And not satisfied with running them out of Thessalonica, the Jews followed Paul and Silas into Berea and started giving them grief in Berea. Now this might sound familiar about this might sound familiar because we also see Jews leaving their home turf to follow Paul around to persecute him. On the first journey, we read this in Acts fourteen nineteen, we see that Jews came from Antioch and Iconium to Lystra on the first journey in order to persecute Paul and Barnabas. Reading Acts 14:19, then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and when they had won over the crowds and stoned Paul, they dragged him out of the city, thinking he was dead. These Jews, they were serious. These, anti- these rabbinic Jews, these anti-Christian Jews, they were very serious. And then, of course, earlier, remember when Paul came down from Damascus and the Arabian Desert, where he had been for two years after being converted, he went down to Jerusalem, and for 15 days he preached to the Hellenistic Jews, and then the Jews ran him out of town. When the, Acts 9.30, when the brothers found out, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus so the Jews couldn't get him. And then, of course, after the third journey, when Paul goes back to Jerusalem, they tried to kill him. He was protected by the Romans, and he was sent off to Rome. So Paul, he had a target on his back the whole time. His fellow Jews, his countrymen, that Paul would have lost his salvation for, as he says in Romans, these same Jews are constantly persecuting him. And so here we go again, agitating and disturbing the crowds, the Jews are, in, Act, in verse 13, Acts 17:14. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul away to go to the sea, but Silas and Timothy stayed on there. Now, Timothy was either with them the whole time, or either he had come down from Philippi later on. We don't know, at least I don't know. But Silas and Timothy stay, Paul goes away. Now, the question is, is why did two of them stay and one of them leave? Well, I'm just speculating here. It could have been that or this is John Gill's speculation, Paul was the one the Jews were most offended by. Maybe he was the leader, maybe he's the one that was speaking the most. He was the obvious leader, so they said, well, let's get him out. Silas and Timothy might be able to keep a lower profile. And, of course, they stayed behind, Silas and Timothy did, to strengthen the new converts at Berea. Now, Jameson Fawcett and Brown point out that it's a 
apparently the Paul's plan of establishing churches. He would establish them and then he would leave people behind to strengthen them as he moved on. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown speculate that Timothy later followed Paul from Philippi to Thessalonica. And then he goes from Thessalonica with Paul to Berea. That's speculation. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say that Timothy probably carried donations from the Philippians to Paul at Thessalonica. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown quote Philippians 4:15 through 16 to that effect. And you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica you sent gifts for my need several times. So the idea is that Luke was left behind in Philippi, or t- excuse me, Timothy was left behind in Philippi. Paul moves on down to Thessalonica, and then Timothy comes down from Philippi, carrying a contribution from Philippi to Paul at Thessalonica. And then Timothy goes from Thessalonica to Berea, where we find him here, and he stays in Berea. Okay, that's speculation. I don't know. But at any rate, Silas and Timothy are now at Berea, left behind, as Paul heads out to Athens. We see this in verse 15 of Acts 17. Those who escorted Paul and brought him brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving instructions for Silas and Timothy to come to him as quickly as possible, they departed. In other words, the brothers took him to Athens, and then Paul says, okay, brothers, these are, these are unnamed Berean brothers, okay, Berean brothers, go back up to Berea, find Silas and Timothy, and tell them to come to me in Athens as quick as you can. I want some help. And so these brothers departed and went back to Berea to tell we assume, to tell Silas and Timothy that. Now, this is what Paul wanted. He wanted Silas and Timothy to come to him at Athens as soon as possible. However, a lot of Bible commentators say that Silas and Timothy never came, or at least it's doubtful that they came. They quote 1 Thessalonians 3.1 when Paul says this, Therefore, when we could no longer stand it, we thought it was better to be left alone in Athens. In other words, he's down there in Athens and he's waiting and waiting and waiting, and he's left alone. He says so right here in the letter, to which I say that doesn't prove anything. First of all, of course he would be alone there for a while until Timothy got from Berea down to Athens. That's one p- point you could make. The n- next point is, this is Jameson Fawcett and Brown's point, Paul could have sent Timothy, P- Timothy could have come to Athens, as Paul requested the Berean brothers to ask Timothy to do that, He could have come to Athens, then he could have gone back to Thessalonica because they didn't have much evangelistic success in Athens, as we know. So Paul could have said, okay, Timothy, go back to Thessalonica and help the brothers there. Or Timothy could have come down to Paul at Athens, and then Paul could have sent him forward to Corinth, where Paul meets up with again later. We know that he meets with Timothy later because Acts 18.5, which refers to Corinth, when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, came to Corinth from Macedonia. Okay, so again, a lot of speculation of where these all these apostles and missionaries were at the time. Let me insert here one point that I omitted. Back in verse 14, it says the brothers there in Berea immediately sent Paul away to go to the sea, and most people assume that Paul got in the boat and went back down to Athens. But the NIV study Bible, the NIV version has away to the coast, and the NIV study Bible says that, well, yeah, he could have gone by a boat, but he also could have gone along by the coast road down to Athens. And Adam Clark suggests that that might be the case, too. So I just thought I'd mention that, not that it's very important. It's speculation. But we know that Silas, we know that Paul is by himself in Athens now, and that's where we're going to leave him, and we'll take that up next time, his famous 
preaching at Athens, which has caused all kinds of apologetic uproar as people debate on how he witnessed to the Gentiles there. Interesting question. We'll take that up in our next audio, starting with verse 16, and we will finish Acts 1 through 15 right here. I hope you enjoy this audio.